Chapter 19 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. The Invasion by John Burgoyne. Early in the summer of 1777, Burgoyne, or John Burgoyne Esquire, as he wrote his name, was ready for his advance from Montreal, and by June 1st he had mustered a force of more than 7,000 men at St. John's, at the foot of Lake Champlain. Owing to the quarrels and bitter rivalries of the colonies, the enemies of General Philip Schuyler had succeeded in having General Gates placed in command of the army that was to oppose the advance of the British. This, however, lasted only a few weeks, and Schuyler was again given command, and Gates assigned to a position under him. But the disposition of Gates was so petty, and his vanity so great, that he refused to serve under the abler man, and in a pet withdrew for a time from the region. The middle of June Burgoyne set sail. The coming of the Tories, Canadians, and Indians had increased his force to almost 10,000 men, of whom a little more than 3,000 were Hessians, led by the doughty General Redesel whose wife also accompanied him on the expedition. Burgoyne's fleet must have presented a picturesque and stirring sight on that beautiful June morning when it set sail on the blue waters of Lake Champlain, but its gay appearance was only a reflection of the confidence and gaiety the men all felt in their hearts. In advance was a multitude of birch-bark canoes filled with painted Indians, whose savage faces and gleaming eyes were already familiar to the hardy settlers of the region. Behind them came the barges filled with the men of the division of which General Fraser, next to Burgoyne in authority, and the ablest general in the British ranks, was in command. Next to them were the armed vessels, among which were two frigates. The other generals and the main body of the invading army were close behind the fleet, and the rear was brought up by the followers of the camp, a motley assemblage of Tories and Canadians. Scouts of the Americans were on the lookout and soon spied the imposing fleet as it moved up the lake, and swiftly bore the word of the advance to General St. Clair, who was in command of Fort Ticonderoga, or Fort Ty, as almost everyone called it, which once more was to fall without a gun having been fired in its defense. For a few days, from June 21st to the 28th, Burgoyne's army halted at the falls of the little stream or river Bouquet, where large numbers of his Indian allies joined his forces. The days and nights were largely given over to feasting, and John Burgoyne, Esquire, made an address to the red men in which, adopting their own manner of speaking, he urged them not to forget the requirements of civilized warfare. It is likely that Burgoyne himself was not in favor of permitting the savage to scalp or maltreat their victims, and yet when he set forth his proclamation, as he did throughout the adjacent region, in addition to the invitation he extended to all to place themselves under his protecting care and the warnings he gave against permitting the rebels to secure provisions, he added a threat that he would let loose his hordes if his demands were not complied with. A small garrison was left by the British at Crown Point, and then the army pushed on for Fort Ticonderoga, where it naturally was thought the rebels would fight if anywhere they dared to make a stand before the advancing men. General St. Clair, with about 3,000 men, was in command of the fort, which was fairly well equipped, and had been greatly strengthened since it had been in the possession of the Americans. Not far from the fort, it was not quite a mile, 
There was a bold rocky height which rose 600 feet above the waters. This point has been known as Sugarloaf Hill or Mount Defiance. It is strange that this eminence should have been neglected by the Americans, for a force once gaining its summit would have the fort at its mercy. Again and again the leaders had been urged to secure it, but they declared no enemy could scale its steep sides, much less drag cannon up its slopes, and all this too in spite of the fact that Arnold and others had shown that such a deed could be done by doing it themselves. However, the place was left as nature had made it, and in a false feeling of security, St. Clair waited. They had not long to wait, for the British, quick to see the importance of gaining possession of the height, working under the direction of their valiant General Phillips all through the night of July 4th, dragged a few brass cannon up the narrow defiles and rude pathways they had hastily constructed, and on the next morning, July 5, 1777, the astonished Americans in old tie beheld their enemies looking down from the height, which they had so confidently asserted could not be scaled. The redcoats were not quite ready to begin the attack, however, and St. Clair, after consulting with his officers, decided to evacuate the fort that very night. For this he afterward was sharply blamed by the people, and perhaps he was not entirely without fault. Certainly he should have looked after Sugarloaf Hill, Mount Defiance the British had already named it. But it is difficult to judge honestly of his act at this late day. It was hoped that in the darkness the little army would be able to withdraw without their departure being discovered by the redcoats. The plan was for St. Clair to take the most of the men and retreat among the Green Mountains, while the wives of the officers, the stores, and all the guns and ammunition they could carry were to be taken by water to Skanesboro, now Whitehall, and thence to Fort Edward, where General Schuyler and his force lay, and where St. Clair also hoped to come by another way. A great chain and many obstructions had been placed in the water, by which it was hoped that the British fleet would be delayed, if not held back, and so would be prevented from making an immediate pursuit. It was about three o'clock in the morning of July 6th, and a part of the garrison had already left the fort, when suddenly one of the houses in the fort took fire. This was claimed to be the result of an accident, but many believed that a treacherous officer had set fire to the building. At all events, whatever the cause may have been, the house was burning, and in the light of the flames the British sentinels discovered the departure of the garrison, and instantly set to work. Not an hour had elapsed before their own flag was flying over the walls of Old Fort Tye, which once more had fallen without the discharge of a gun. General Fraser was sent with 900 men in swift pursuit of the fleeing Americans. Arrangements were made by which the Hessians, under Redesil, were to follow up Fraser and give him their aid, and Burgoyne himself, with all the remainder of his army, except 1,000 men whom he left to hold the fort, which had so easily fallen into his possession, started in pursuit of those who had fled with the stores and ammunition up the lake. The men with St. Clair, it is to be feared, were more like a mob than an army, and were fleeing without much order in the wild hope that they might soon join the forces with Schuyler, or at least get between Burgoyne and Schuyler, and possibly do enough to hold the British back until they themselves could be reinforced by Schuyler's men. The day was intensely warm, and the fear and haste greatly wearied all. They did not even know that Fraser and the Hessians were following them, but after they had arrived at Hubberton, St. Clair decided to push on, leaving Colonel Warner and Colonel Francis at that little town for a rear guard. It was a mistake for Warner to halt, for all agreed that he should have kept close to his leader, but his men were so nearly exhausted, the weather was so hot, 
and as he did not know of Fraser's pursuit, he decided to give his men a rest for the night there, though he wisely took the precaution of cutting down many of the trees and much of the brush, which would be sure to entangle any possible advancing foe if it did not check him. On the following morning, July 7, 1777, at about five o'clock when the men were preparing their breakfast, they were astounded by a sudden dash upon them by Fraser's men, who, as we know, had in reality been following close upon their heels. In their terror, one regiment broke and fled, but all the other men heroically stood their ground, and then began one of the fiercest fights of the entire war. The British were bothered by the brush and fallen trees, and soon every man was fighting from behind trees or such protection as he could secure. The forces were not unevenly matched, and the zeal of the redcoats was not greater than the desperate resistance of the Americans. Man after man fell. Colonel Francis was killed, but still the men fought on. The British were beginning to give way when suddenly the song of an advancing host was heard. The Americans, of course, did not know that the Hessians, though they had been left far behind by Fraser's men, were coming to the aid of their comrades. It might be that it was the entire force of Burgoyne advancing upon them. So the patriots broke and fled, every man for himself. They had lost three hundred in killed and wounded, besides many prisoners, and the British had also suffered severely. Meanwhile, Burgoyne had been in swift pursuit of the Americans who had fled up the lake with their flotilla. They had just arrived in Skanesborough, and before their boats could be cleared for action, the gunboats of the British began to fire. It could hardly be called a defense that the Americans made and setting fire to their boats and stores, the Americans, almost panic-stricken, managed somehow to escape to Fort Anne. At almost the same time, word of the loss at Skanesboro, and of the defeat of Colonel Warner at Hubbardon, came to the distracted General St. Clair. His own followers, only numbering now about half as many as when he had left Fort Ticonderoga, were terrorized. He had but few supplies left, and the region behind him was held by Fraser and Redesel. He did what he could, however, and five days later, after having fled by the way of Rutland and Bennington, he succeeded in joining Schuyler at Fort Edward, while Warner and his men at last rested at Bennington. Burgoyne naturally was highly elated at the wonderful success which had been his. It did indeed seem as if he had succeeded, for in less than a week all the events in his campaign which we have recorded had occurred, and small cause for wonder is it that he sent word of his success to England which as greatly pleased the king as it had John Burgoyne, Esquire, himself. Philip Schuyler now quickly sent men to aid St. Clair at Fort Anne, but Burgoyne was moving swiftly, eager not only to give the Americans no time to recover, but to complete his work as speedily as possible. But the regiment he instantly sent forward to Fort Anne, even while the flames of Skanesboro were blazing, found when they arrived that the demoralized Americans were not entirely conquered yet. Not waiting for the British to approach, the hardy patriots dashed upon them with such fury that, for once, the Britons did retreat. But the frightful yelling of the approaching Indians caused the victorious Americans to halt, and delaying but a moment in the face of a peril which to the settlers was greater than all others, they quickly set fire to the blockhouse at Fort Anne, and then started swiftly for Fort Edward. But the British, checked for the moment, instead of pursuing, fell back to rejoin their comrades at Skanesboro. Certainly the Americans had not thus far made a very good showing. At this day we can understand better than did our forefathers the problems the leaders were compelled to face. Congress had given but little aid. The troops were poorly equipped, 
and without discipline, and were compelled to face an enemy which they had always been taught was the most powerful on earth. Small cause for wonder is it that the soldiers themselves were disheartened men. And such men as John Adams declared that the Americans would not be able to defend a post until they first shot some of the generals. Had it not been for Washington's great heart and his complete confidence in Philip Schuyler, worse disasters than those already related would very likely have befallen the demoralized army, which was trying to head off John Burgoyne on what appeared to be his successful invasion of the country. Washington himself could not come to the aid of his friend, for as we shall elsewhere learn, he did not himself know what the British plans were. Howe was in New York, but where he would strike, Washington could not determine. It might be New England, and it might be Philadelphia, and he must be prepared for either event. Burgoyne increased his confusion when he learned that the Hessians had been left in Vermont, with the very purpose of creating an impression that the invading army was planning to march toward Boston. John Burgoyne himself, meanwhile, had fallen back upon Skanesboro, and was planning for a march to Albany. More savages and Tories now joined his ranks, but his delay afforded the Americans the opportunity they most desired, and they at once began to destroy the bridges and make many obstructions on the road which Burgoyne must follow. But as Schuyler did not have four thousand men all told with him at Fort Edward, he did not feel that he dared venture a battle, and so fell back to Moses Creek, then Saratoga, and at last to Stillwater, and Burgoyne's advance when he left Skanesboro was so slow that often he could not march more than a mile a day, and it was the 30th of July before, at last, his army was at Fort Edward. Two new perils now began to threaten the invading army, one being that of the failure of their supplies, and the other was that of the enemies, who were assembling behind them, for the patriots in the region were beginning to recover from the fear Burgoyne's advance at first had produced. They had also been greatly stirred by the use Burgoyne was making of the Indians, and in particular the story of Jane or Jenny McCrae aroused their anger and made them determined to resist to the uttermost the efforts of those who were capable of using such allies to win back the disloyal subjects of King George. This story has been told in many different forms, but the one related by Colonel William L. Stone in his very excellent work, The Campaign of Sir John Burgoyne, seems to be authentic and it is given here in that writer's own words. Quote, On the morning of the 27th of July, 1777, Miss McRae and Mrs. McNeil were in the latter's house at Fort Edward, preparing to set out for Fort Miller for greater security, as rumors had been rife of Indians in the vicinity. Their action was the result of a message sent to them early in the morning by General Arnold, who had, at the same time, dispatched for their assistance Lieutenant Palmer, with some twenty men, with orders to place their furniture and effects on board a bateau, and row the family down to Fort Miller. Lieutenant Palmer, having been informed by Mrs. McNeil that nearly all her household goods had been put on board the bateau, remarked that he, with the soldiers, was going up the hill as far as an old blockhouse, for the purpose of reconnoitering, but would not be long absent. The lieutenant and his party, however, not returning, Mrs. McNeil and Jane McRae concluded not to wait longer, but to ride on horseback to Colonel McRae's ferry leaving the further loading of the boat to the charge of the black servant. When the horses, however, were brought up to the door, it was found that one side saddle was missing, and a boy was accordingly dispatched to the house of a Mr. Gillis for the purpose of borrowing a side saddle or pillion. While watching for the boy's return, Mrs. McNeil heard a discharge of firearms, 
and looking out of the window, saw one of Lieutenant Palmer's soldiers running along the military road toward the fort, pursued by several Indians. The fugitive, seeing Mrs. McNeil, waved his hat as a signal of danger, and passed on, which the Indians perceiving left off the pursuit, and came toward the house. Seeing their intention, Mrs. McNeil screamed, Get down, cellar for your lives. On this, Jane McCrae and the black woman, Eve, with her infant, retreated safely to the cellar. But Mrs. McNeil was caught on the stairs by the Indians, and dragged back by the hair of her head, by a powerful savage, who was addressed by his companions as Wyandotte Panther. A search in the cellar was then begun, and the result was the discovery of Jane McCrae, who was brought up from her concealment. Wyandotte, exclaiming upon seeing her, My squaw, me find him again, me keep him fast now, Fabet, ugh. By this time the soldiers had arrived at the fort. The alarm drum was beaten, and a party of soldiers started in pursuit. Alarmed by the noise of the drum, which they in common with Mrs. McNeil and Jenny heard, the Indians, after a hurried consultation, hastily lifted the two women upon the horses, which had been waiting at the door, to carry them to Colonel McRae's ferry, and started off upon a run. Mrs. McNeil, however, having been placed upon the horse on which there was no saddle, slipped off and was thereupon carried in the arms of a stalwart savage. At this point, Mrs. McNeil lost sight of her companion, who, to use the language of Mrs. McNeil, was there ahead of me, and appeared to be firmly seated upon the saddle, and held the rein, while several Indians seemed to guard her. Wyandotte, still ascending the hill, and pulling along by bridle bit the affrighted horse upon which the poor Jenny rode. The Indians, however, when halfway up the hill, were nearly overtaken by the soldiers, who at this point began firing by platoons. At every discharge the Indians would fall flat with Mrs. McNeil. By the time the top of Fort Edward Hill had been gained, not an Indian was harmed. And one of them remarked to Mrs. McNeil, Wah! I'm no kill. I'm shoot too much high for hit. During the firing, two or three bullets of the pursuing party hit Miss McRae with a fatal effect, who, falling from her horse, had her scalp torn off by the guide, the Wyandotte Panther, in revenge of the loss of the reward given by Burgoyne for any white prisoner, a reward considered equal to a barrel of rum. Mrs. McNeil, however, was carried to Griffith's house, and there kept by the Indians until the next day, when she was ransomed and taken to the British camp. I never saw Jenny afterward, says Mrs. McNeil, nor anything that appertained to her person, until my arrival in the British camp, when an aide-de-camp showed me a fresh scalp-lock, which I could not mistake, because the hair was unusually fine, luxuriant, lustrous, and dark as the wings of a raven. Till that evidence of her death was exhibited, I hoped, almost against hope, that poor Jenny had either been rescued by our pursuers, in whose army her brother Stephen McRae was a surgeon, or brought by our captors to some part of the British encampment. While at Griffith's house, Mrs. McNeil endeavored to hire an Indian, named Captain Tomo, to go back and search for her companion, but neither he nor any of the Indians could be prevailed upon to venture even as far back as the brow of the Fort Edward Hill, to look down for the white squaw, as they called Jenny. The remains of Miss McRae were gathered up by those who would have rescued her, and buried, together with those of Lieutenant Palmer, under the supervision of Colonel Morgan Lewis, then Deputy Quartermaster General, on the bank of the creek, three miles south of Fort Edward, and two miles south of her brother John McRae's farm, which was across the Hudson, and directly opposite the principal encampment of General Schuyler. Shortly after this time, 
hardly realizing the state of feeling among the scattered people, who Burgoyne fondly hoped would flock to him, with the double purpose of securing supplies and of striking a blow at New England, he decided to use his Hessians, who the Americans claimed were especially good at foraging, in an attack upon Bennington. So Colonel Baum, with a force of about 1,000 men, made up of Hessians, Indians, Canadians, and Tories, with a goodly supply of Tory guides from the vicinity, started to do Burgoyne's will. Confident that there were many Tories in the region, who would rally to his aid at his approach, and with strong reinforcements of Hessians under the command of Brayman following him, and never dreaming that the peasants would stand before his cannon or well-drilled soldiers, the Hessian leader was hopeful that prisoners and spoils would soon be his. End of chapter 19